Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Think you know how much your house is worth? Well, think again. The FT's Kate Allen has got news for you. Plus, her family trust funds had their day. And would you pay several thousands of pounds a year to belong to a private members club? James Max drops in to discuss his latest rich people's problems column. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all this week's money news. If you're a homeowner, it's likely that you have a number in your head of what you think your house or flat would be worth if you sold it on the open market. However comforting that may feel, Kate Allen, our Capital Markets correspondent, believes that in many cases our expectations may be inaccurate. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome, Kate. So as a market, you think that the UK housing market is much more inefficient than many people realise. Yes, most markets have much higher transaction volumes than property does. So, for example, equities, bonds, they change hands much more often. That makes the process of price discovery much more effective mm-hmm. because each time a, an equity, a share price, a share changes hands, that has implications for every single other share of that company of the same class in the market. Now, with housing, there are two reasons why that's not the case. First of all, transaction volumes are considerably lower than in most other what we would call markets. So only 4.5% of the UK's housing stock changed hands last year. That's extremely low. So first of all, that's a very illiquid market. Secondly... Houses aren't what we would call fungible, i.e. one house isn't just like any other house. There are lots and lots of characteristics, location, condition, size, local amenities such as school catchment areas, Mm. all of which mean that finding a house that is exactly like your house in order to compare its transaction price to what your house might be worth is extremely difficult. So what do we know about those houses that aren't selling? So there are reasons to think that maybe the 95% of British houses which didn't sell last year are slightly different to the 45 to 5% that did, and that therefore what the average reader or listener to the podcast can take away from what the house price indices seem to be telling them is less, you know, perhaps a lot of people think. A lot of people think what the house price indices reported on the front pages say has real-life implications for the value of their property, makes them feel happy when prices are going up, makes them feel sad when prices are going down. But actually that may not be the case. So a lot of property that don't sell tend to be quite often because of what estate agents call the three Ds, death, divorce and debt. So these properties will only transact when one of these things happens. You have to basically be forced into a sale. Now that may be because the price available that someone's willing to pay for your property is not what you believe it's worth. It may be because you're actually underwater, i.e. the price of the property has fallen since you bought it. Negative equity. Exactly. Mm. You can't afford to crystallise that loss. So you will only sell in that case if you're a forced seller. So you will only appear in the house price indices if you're a forced seller. Now death, divorce and debt are really 
really not necessarily as important uh, in the UK housing market as they used to be. And therefore, I think it's fair to say, you know, transaction volumes are still about a quarter lower than they were before the financial crisis. It's fair to say that there's this kind of hidden, clogged up part of the housing market that we're not seeing make its way through into the housing market statistics that we need to bear in mind when we think about what valuation really means. Just to pull you up on that last statistic about how the market appears to be slowing, is this more of a problem than it used to be? In terms of volume of transactions? Yeah, Yeah, well, it's certainly the volume of transactions is lower and has been lower since the financial crisis. And the question is now, why is that? Why are transactions lower? Now, part of the problem, I think, is because there is this hidden uh, leftover legacy from the financial crisis. Now, in the 1990s, when we had a true house price crash and housing really got devalued down to a level that kind of wiped out some of the irrational exuberance that there was in the market at the time, that was because you had banks foreclosing on people who couldn't afford their mortgage and selling off stock at fire sale prices. And that creates this downward house price spiral, which effectively, from a market's perspective, revalues the market back down to what the meaningful true value would be. This time around, we really didn't do that to the same extent. So in 2011, for example, Bank of England suggested that as many as 12% of all UK mortgages could be in some form of what they call forbearance. That's a broad term for various informal remedies, such as switching to interest-only mortgages, reducing monthly payments, taking a payment holiday, increasing the length of the mortgage term, all of which was intended to prevent the kind of downward house price spiral that we saw in the 1990s and early 2000s. Now that's fine, it helped to save us from a big house price crash. But what it means is that the housing cycle then started the next property cycle at an artificially high house Mm. price level and went up from there, which means that the banks are effectively sitting on a lot of unrecognised, overvalued property. And until the system corrects itself, that legacy will continue to be there, present in the system, kind of clogging it up. Fantastic. Well, don't kid yourselves, listeners, about what your house might be worth. Thanks very much there to Kate Allen. You can read her full column in the money section of the weekend newspaper this Saturday or online now at ft.com slash money. Already over 100 comments, I see, Kate. Keep up the good work. Coming up on The Money Show, are private members' clubs worth it? But before that, thank goodness for family trust funds. If they had never been invented, the plots of many 19th century novels by the likes of Dickens and Jane Austen would be the poorer for it. But in FT Money this week, our resident tax expert Vanessa Holder argues that the tax-efficient structures are becoming less relevant and more cumbersome in our modern age. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome, Vanessa. Hello, Claire. So let's start with the bigger picture. Why have people used trusts in the past? Well, these structures have a very long history. Back in the time of the Crusades, knights would use them to protect their interests and look after their wives and children. Essentially, they're a concept which allow assets to be held by trustees on behalf of beneficiaries. They provide people with means of controlling how their assets are used after they've been given away. This idea of controlling money from beyond the grave has been, as you say, a great plot device for novels. But beyond that, it's played a big part in preserving wealth and stopping ancestral estates from being broken up. So how are trust structures becoming less useful today? Well, they can be complicated and expensive. And in many cases, there are better ways to achieve the same result. From a tax perspective, they became much less attractive in 2006 when Gordon Brown cracked down on them being used to shelter wealth from inheritance tax. That means if you put more than £325,000 into a trust, you have to pay some inheritance tax immediately. Wow. So will wealthy families continue to use them in some circumstances? Yes, even though 
tax planners mourn the old days when trusts made it so easy to avoid tax. They still have a lot of uses. There are still inheritance tax advantages in some circumstances. They're often wrapped around in life assurance policies. They're used to pay school fees, protect assets from divorce or bankruptcy, and they're widely used in wills. If people want to ensure that their assets are ultimately inherited by their children, even if their husband or wife remarries, there's a really big case for using a trust. And they also can be used to prevent youngsters from being given too much cash too soon, with all the disastrous consequences that can entail. Yes, um, see our previous piece on rich kiditis for more on that. But finally, a few weeks ago in FT Money, you co-authored a piece about how readers' personal finances could change if a government led by Jeremy Corbyn got into power. Could this also affect the financial plans behind many trust structures? Yes, trusts are controversial. Labour has described them as a key vehicle for tax avoidance and illicit financial flows. It says it wants a public register of trusts, which would show the assets and beneficiaries. And a lot of people using trusts would feel very uncomfortable about that. They'd see it as an invasion of privacy. And if that happens, if Labour is in a position to act on its manifesto promise, my guess is a lot of people would consider unwinding them. Very interesting. Well, thanks very much there to the FT's Vanessa Holder. You can read her full report in the FT Money section this weekend or online from saturdayft.com slash money. Vanessa will be speaking at our next FT Money Reader event, where we will debate how, rightly or wrongly, people are attempting to hedge their finances against a future Corbyn government. Jim Pickard, the FT's Deputy Political Editor, and Michael Martin from Seven Investment Management will be joining me on stage. Tickets cost £35 for the evening event to be held in central London on Monday, the 26th of February. If you'd like to buy a ticket and read full terms and conditions, go to ft.com slash money events. And now for something completely different. January has been a lean month for James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist. Paying his annual subs for a host of private members clubs has left him feeling considerably less flush. So are they worth it? He joins me now in the FT studio. Welcome, James. Well, thank you for having me back. So many readers will be shocked, frankly, that you pay to belong to no less than four private members club. I guess, look, Anybody who has been in a situation like me, that you've had lots of different jobs, you've worked in different places, and uh, you've lived in, as I have, central London for a while, you kind of had legacy issues. And this is a legacy issue that, you know, I've had places that I've been members of for years when they had a real push to get younger members and it didn't cost much at all. It was, a, you know, 100 quid or 200 quid. And then suddenly you find yourself and you're paying the full subs. And as and when you're earning, hopefully, a fortune working for an investment bank or private equity, to be honest, and I know some people have left some very po-faced comments about this, uh, saying, oh, it's a throwing out of money do you really know what you're doing yes i do know what i'm doing and guess what you know a few thousand quid here or there when you're earning quite a lot of money is nothing in comparison to the benefit that you have from these places what do you get out of it so i think about having a club is that first of all if you go out in the west end particularly it can get really crowded in places that are not clubs you may or may not get in you might have to pay entry you might have to have a table that has drinks provided or it's a nightclub or it's too loud or it's anything else and you don't know what you're going to get in a private members club you get privacy Uh, You get discretion, you get great food, you get all sorts of people that you will bump into. And certain clubs will have certain kinds of people. Sometimes it's very political, sometimes it's very business orientated. And a lot of business is done through the connections that people have. And you may say, oh, that's wrong. But in business, it's really important to make sure that you are maintaining your contacts. And sometimes you have to have somewhere that's very discreet. You can't meet the person that you're trying to hire in the office. You can't do the business deal that you want to do 
in the office. You can't be seen together with other people because that will give them a clue as to what you're up to because these things are incredibly sensitive. So this discretion element and this connectivity element is worth it. And also, I think if you're trying to manage your life and you're trying to do things which are a bit fun and a bit interesting, it's quite nice to be on home turf if you're meeting somebody because you know the offer. If you're always going to new restaurants all the time, you may or may not get a table, the service may or may not be up to it, you might not like the food, all this sort of stuff. You might not be able to hear yourself, which is a problem I find increasingly. No, that's right. A lot of restaurants, you're too close to the next table. You cannot have a private conversation. And they all play banging tunes. But I like a banging tune, but there's a time and a place for that. (laughs) Nevertheless, some readers have questioned why you pay your annual membership fees in one go when they say most clubs will apparently let you pay in monthly instalments. Most of the clubs that I'm a member of don't. And secondly, (laughs) I think it's like a dripping tap. If you can't afford to pay for the club membership and, and you have to do it on a monthly basis, first of all, it costs you more. And secondly, you know, you really should be having that moment every year where you make the conscious decision to stay or to go as opposed to drip, drip, drip and not even notice that it's coming out of your account. Yeah, the recurring direct debit. Now, people can read your column to find out which of your four clubs you decided to to drop. It's online now, ft.com slash money. But if they do read it, they can also see the plethora of reader comments and there are certainly a few humdingers in there. There are a few. And let's be honest, they're, they're not all exactly positive. I think there are some people out there who think that either I'm stupid, daft, or daft and stupid, or don't know what I'm doing, or I'm an idiot, or why am I employed by the FT? You can probably answer that question. Well, I think that my favourite kind of line of attack and from your commenters was that there's a theory going around that you are really a Lucy Kellaway creation and don't exist and you're another Martin Luke's type character that has been invented by her fair pen. Well, it is possible that I am a figment of your imagination. I am a hired hand and the person who really writes these is well ensconced, perhaps in an island, maybe in Stornoway or Sky or something like that. Just imagine that I'm sort of locked up in the, the equivalence of the sort of Financial Times Hogwarts of uh, creative writing. Just coming up with this stuff just so that you can get riled and annoyed. But I think some of these comments, though, are tremendously funny Go on, and, read and out in some fact, of your favorites. To, to be honest i'm more keen on the either the very nice ones which are nice or the ones which are vile so this one says hope the ft isn't paying much for this article feels like the product with 10 minutes work on a sunday evening if only if you want to apply for my job have a go this one says uh, i only subscribe for the comments now really because <laughs> they like read them and this one says uh, james uh, sounds like a moron and another one says arthur daly meets the ft oh that's quality yes and, and then they add this is punishment for all of us plebs who want to read lex but can't afford to pay the premium subscription there, there is that but then i also enjoy the sorts of comments that people clearly think that they know more than me and what i'm trying to do in this column i suppose is to provoke you to think about the things that you're not going to have the same problems that i do but you'll probably have similar problems and it gets you thinking. And we do get some really nice emails from people who are saying, actually, you got me thinking about this membership or that membership or I don't use it as much. And your article either made me laugh or made me realise that this thing I was doing myself and I've got to stop. And if it helps you do that, then that's great. Mm. As opposed to this person who says, writer is clearly an idiot who doesn't know how to manage the money he's throwing. And then he says, I'm a member of the IOD and the RAC, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you can keep your IOD and your RAC, which are a, a little bit run-of-the-mill and sort of cheap hotel. Another person says, perhaps slightly unkindly, why doesn't he spend the money on a gym looking at the state of his chins? How rude. I thought that was a good picture. That that was post-diet. Look, everybody's going to have their take. And and in fact, the more 
comments that we receive, even if they are, you know, somewhat ridiculous. So this one says, no surprise, this bloke's a property expert. They always talk the most rubbish, which is probably why I have a new radio show that's 90 minutes every weekday on talk radio from 5 till 6.30 with some property element. But having trained in real estate and having worked in investment banking and in private equity, hopefully some of the nonsense that I tackle in these articles is the sort of things that you would like to perhaps have explored for yourself. So we do throw it out there and say, if you want to send me an email, polite or not, that says, I've got this problem, or could you solve this for me? Or even under an acronym, just send us an email to richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. We'd be delighted to have a look at it. And maybe some more of you like this commenter who says, this column is refreshingly honest. That was a nice one. It was a nice one. Well, thank you, James. Max there for coming in and talking to us on the FT Money podcast. And I stress, if you have some woes to send his way, his email address is richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. Please note there is no apostrophe. And yes, you can catch his new early business breakfast show every weekday morning from 5am on Talk Radio. That's it from the FT Money show this week. You can get in touch with our team of writers or ask one of our experts to look into a financial dilemma by emailing us our address money at ft.com or tweet us at FT Money. And don't forget forget you can read all of the articles mentioned and more on our website ft.com slash money we'll be back next week at the usual time goodbye support for this podcast and the following message come from corient corient provides wealth management services centered around you as one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the u.s corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.